the Classic Comics Forum Podcast presents issue number seven, first issue special, part two. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Harris, and in this episode, we present part two of my conversation with Classic Comics Forum member Cody Starbuck about the classic DC Comics tryout series, First Issue Special. Last episode, Cody Starbuck and I discussed the first seven issues, which included stories from a number of old-time comic creators such as Jack Kirby, Joe Simon, Robert Conniger, Bob Haney, and Steve Ditko. In this episode, we'll be discussing issues 8 through 13, where the series took a dramatic shift into modern times, featuring a new wave of creators such as Mike Grell, Walt Simonson, and Jerry Conway. We pick up the discussion starting with the instant classic issue number 8, the first appearance of one of my favorite comic book characters, Warlord. Enjoy! Well, the commercial fortunes of this book are about to change drastically. And in fact, for me, the whole tone of the series changes with issue 8, which is probably the only issue most people have ever heard of or read from the series because it's the first appearance of the Warlord. Yes. Starting with this issue, um, we start getting a lot more issues in the series that actually feel like contemporary comic books, and they're being done by contemporary writers. Now, part of that is because previous issues that were supposed to be by contemporary people, like issue six, that was supposed to be the Batgirl and Robin, that was by Elliot S. Magan and Mike Grell, a contemporary uh, creative team, but that, of course, was pulled. This is the first time we get a book that really feels like it's new and fresh and interesting. And it's, to me, it's by far the best issue of the series. There are a couple other good ones still coming up. Uh, the Dr. Fate in issue 9, which we'll get to in a minute, and uh, Starman issue 12 are also really good. But for me, this is by far the best issue of the series. So it kind of makes sense that it also breaks the mold in that this is not a tryout because they say right in this issue that the series uh-huh. has already been picked up and will be continuing as an ongoing series the next month. Yeah, I almost get the impression that they put it in a first issue special to just kind of boost the sales on that magazine and kind of give it a little longer life uh, that it needed a shot in the arm and they're like, okay, well, let's, let's stick the first one in here and then we'll go into series. So... For those who don't know, Warlord is basically um, a take on a um, like Edgar Rice Burroughs' Pellucidar story where, you know, it's like a journey to the center of the earth sort of thing. Okay. Um, Travis Morgan is a Air Force pilot. He's piloting in a spy plane. He gets shot down. And when his plane crashes, uh, instead of crashing into the Arctic, it crashes through a mysterious hole that leads to a sort of a tropical land inside the earth in the early issues it was inside the earth they eventually retconned that and said it was a portal to another dimension doesn't really matter what what matters is that uh it's a world that's full of um dinosaurs and wizards and ancient technology and you know all that sort of stuff it's a pitch that um 
Grell had originally designed this series slightly differently. Uh, it was a book that he was supposed to be doing for Atlas Comics, and DC heard about the deal and offered him a chance to get his own book at DC and make more money. And so he reworked the pitch into Warlord, and they they you know gave the green light on the book. Um, I'm a huge Warlord fan. Warlord was one of the first comics I ever read. Warlord number 90 was one of my first comics. And I love Warlord. And, but my own prejudice aside, I mean, everything, you know, is my own opinion. But when I reread the entire run of first issue special, the, this issue eight is like night and day compared to the first seven. It's just yeah. on a whole different level. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, that actually it was uh, even a, a rework of a previous pitch because Grell originally tried to sell this as a newspaper strip um, and wasn't able to. It was called the Savage Empire. And it was supposed to be an archaeologist who stumbles into this world. And he's published some of the original artwork from it, the sample pages he did, um, and then the kind of retool Warlord with Atlas. But yeah, the it's, it's definitely a fully conceived, uh, fully developed idea and it's obvious that he's going somewhere with it. He's got a definite story in mind, and he tells it. And he also gets to to really expand his his artistic horizons more than I think superheroes did. I mean, Grell always kind of seemed like a reluctant though good uh, superhero artist in his earlier work. He's been, he was very much a kind of a, a Neil Adams ish guy, and he got kind of put on a lot of Neil Adams ish characters doing backup stories and doing the Green Lantern, Green Arrow series and uh, Superboy and the Legion. This is like Grell doing what Grell wants to do. And you can just kind of feel that energy and enthusiasm come through every page from just the details of Travis Morgan trying to do his navigation to try to find um, a landing point after he's been hit by a missile in, the, in the, his Blackbird to... Um, fighting a dinosaur to meeting a wizard and, and all that kind of stuff. It's just you know, using a 38 revolver to try to kill a dinosaur. It's yeah. just everything that Grell loved from Burroughs and from other sources, he just kind of filtered into it. And it so feels like somebody who's creating something great versus somebody who's just you know getting a paycheck. Yeah, and one other thing that's interesting about it, and I think plays into that, is that it's Grell writing and not yeah. just drawing. This is actually one of three issues that was supposed to be published in First Issue Special. It's the only one of his that actually made it into the book. But he also did the Batgirl and Robin issue, and then another issue we'll talk about later, which is Green Arrow, Green Arrow and Black Canary. And But both of those are written by Elliot S. Magan, and neither of them, of course, are nearly as good as this this Warlord appearance, but they're also the art isn't as good either. No. Um, he put a lot more effort into what he was doing here, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was just much more invested as the writer. Uh-huh. And one thing that I find interesting with this, the fact that they published this in this tryout book, is, you know, you think of tryout books as a series that's, you know, they take the sales of these appearances and decide, and if they're good enough, they give them their own series. I have a theory, which, I, and I don't have anything but circumstantial evidence to back this up, but I think 
that the opposite actually happened here. They had already decided to give Warlord his own series, and I think the sales of this issue actually caused the series to get cancelled. Uh, now, you mentioned that you thought they put Warlord in the book to boost the sales of First Issue Special, which may have actually happened, because I can't imagine, you know, this must have sold better than Dingbats of Danger Street. Oh, definitely. But what a lot of people don't know is that Warlord was cancelled after Issue 2. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if you just think about the time frame it takes to um, put the issues out and prepare them, when, when Warlord appeared in First Issue Special number 8, Issues 1 and 2... I think we're already done. Well, number one, there's already an ad for it. And yeah. by the, so they're not going to get the sales figures from this issue of First Issue Special until Issue 2 is already out. And Issue 2 was the last issue of the series. It was canceled. And it wasn't until Jeanette Kahn came on as publisher at DC and went back through the books that had recently been canceled and looked at the sales figures that she decided to bring Warlord back. There was a gap of several months between issues two and three between it being canceled and being revived. And what I think happened is that the sales on the first issue special number eight were so low that they canceled the series after issue two, but that when it was in its own series with issues one and two, the sales figures were good enough to justify it being brought back. They just didn't get those figures in time. And I think, so I just find it weird if I'm right, that this tryout book actually caused the series to get canceled instead of get started. I think it's certainly possible. Um, it's, it could also be a, a simple fact of uh, Carmen went ahead with the series because he didn't want Grell going elsewhere because he was fairly popular with the, the Legion and all that, that it's like, hey, we don't want to lose one of our young guys who we think, you know, may be something big but at the same time he wasn't invested in the book so it's kind of like okay we got him back okay let's get rid of this thing i don't really understand and don't like that could have been a factor too um and carmen and, and sales figures have always been a pretty contentious thing he's always maintained that the sales weren't there and then you get particularly with the kirby stuff and then paul levitz is comes out and said no i've looked at those figures and they would sell it better and a lot of stuff they kept. Uh, in Kirby's case, it was more of they weren't good enough to justify how much the DC was paying him relative to other artists. Uh, with Gorel, I, I suspect the, your theory is probably got a strong possibility. First issue special number eight with Warlord, as we just discussed, they'd already decided to turn into a series. But of all the issues in the run that they could have turned into a series and didn't, it's number nine that I think was the best issue of the run. Oh, yeah. It's not perfect, but it's no. really good. Uh, and um, it was written by Marty Pasco, who for uh-huh. me is very hit or miss. And when I say that, what I mean is he's almost always miss. Once in a while he does something interesting, but it almost doesn't, it, it almost doesn't matter what his writing is in this issue because Walt Simonson's art in this issue is just just so far advanced compared to other stuff coming out at this time in 1975. Oh yeah, it's, it's definitely Walt's baby. Just visually, it just rocks uh, from every little detail. It's, it's kind of the debut of the Ankh symbol with Dr. Fate, and it's just such a, a perfect visual signature for that character. Um, but just the opening splash page of him kind of surfing through the sky rather than 
flying in the, the traditional Superman style. Um, some of the, the the bold sound effects, which is hitting a mummy with a, just a giant wham in the panel, it just really punctuates the things the way that like Kirby in the in the Marvel era, the '60s stuff did, and you can just kind of tell that Simonson is really going to be big, but probably not at DC. Yeah. Now, this issue is so good on so many levels, but as I mentioned, it's not perfect. For those who haven't read it, basically, the story's almost irrelevant, but a mummy comes to life and steals Dr. Fate's amulet, and it turns out uh, he's, the amulet is like a much more powerful artifact than Dr. Fate knew, and he has to get it back and blah 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 you know what it doesn't even matter what happens in the story the the important thing that happens in the story though that i think works against the book is pasco's really ham-handed treatment of dr fate's wife enza yeah definitely um it, it felt like sort of a very typical dc uh overreaction to marvel style mm-hmm. soap opera drama where they see what Marvel's doing and they don't actually know how to do it correctly, but they try and they end up with like really clumsy, awkward, and sometimes offensive um, stuff. In this case, the the family drama between Inza and um, Dr. Fate is way over the top. She leaves him and then she comes back and she's like really being sort of shrewish towards him. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's unfortunate because she has a point with everything she's saying. Yeah. Um, it's just the way Pasco has her come across. It's just, it's really harsh and it, um, it doesn't make me want to read more about the characters in terms of their personal life. I want to see more oh. action with Dr. Fate, but I don't want to see any more family drama with the Nelsons. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely got that, um, the kind of the shrewd as I, my write-up said the shrew and the, the Jewish mother stereotype, um, you know, henpecking at her husband. And but at the same time, it's like everything she brings up is true. It's like he's being controlled by Nabu. He's he's been manipulated. He's put in danger. And what is he getting out of it? And that might work in the hands of say a Roy Thomas versus. Pasco kind of overplays the stereotypes and overplays the moments and goes kind of into melodrama instead of drama. There's a couple other issues that I have with this book, and it's basically, they're not big deals, but it's just me trying to figure out why on earth this didn't turn into an ongoing series, because it, the art is so good and there's so much promise here. The only things I can that I can see, like in terms of my visceral reaction to the series... First of all, on a personal level, I find stories with mummies to be tremendously boring. Uh, They're just so done. Even in the 70s at that point, they had been so overdone that whenever I see something on a cover talking about mummies or sphinxes or Egypt, I kind of just let out a sigh and um, hope that somehow I'm not going to be as disappointed as I'm expecting. That might just be me. I don't know if other people have that reaction uh, and to be fair, the stuff that um, what Simonson does with the mummy during the fight scenes in the book is really excellent. I don't know. I almost wish there was a different story, like that uh, Simonson was, was just illustrating a different story. Um, the other thing, though, that I had, a question I had was, I'm wondering, and 
by the time I started reading DC, it was right when Crisis on Infinite Earths was coming out. So I was never really introduced to pre-Crisis Earth 1, Earth 2. So I, I, this, I'm just asking because I don't know the answer to this. But I wonder if this book didn't sell and Dr. Fate didn't take off as a solo character because of because he was sort of in the Earth 2 ghetto. Like, um, there were no Earth 2 characters that had their own titles. And I wonder if there was a stigma or fans were just... Like, it doesn't come up at all in this story. But for fans who are reading the books and are familiar with Earth 1 and Earth 2 and the characters, you know, and they know that Dr. Fate is an Earth 2 character and he's a golden age character i wonder if there's a sense maybe for fans that his adventures maybe kind of don't matter because they don't affect anything <coughs> happening in the the main dc universe i don't know this is i'm just spitballing here what do you think of that um i'm not so sure about that um because right around this time uh, i think 1976 they revive all-star comics with jerry conway writing doing the Justice Society, and I'd have to look at it again. I can't remember how prominent Dr. Fate is early on. It kind of left the specter in him kind of to the side so they could focus more on the the more physical ones. Um, that might have been a factor in them not going to a series. Some of it may have been uh, Walt's availability, because they did do it as a series of backups uh, with Keith Giffen doing the arts. Um around the time of the, the explosion slash implosion, um, because those got collected with this issue as the, the immortal Dr. Fate, one of those Baxter reprints that DC did in the mid eighties. Um, so I haven't, it may have just been a scheduling issue more than anything else that, um, that kind of waylaid it. Um, the, the earth two thing the crisis kind of skews that to a lot of people, particularly if you weren't reading comics before Crisis came along. Earth 2 was always kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the next generation meeting the original Trek characters when like um, Dr. McCoy turns up in the pilot and then later Spock and Scotty turn up in the TV series. They were like special guests. Um, and like the JLA, JSA crossovers they did every year, those usually sold pretty well and were looked forward by fans, even though more often than not, they were kind of disappointing stories until some of the later ones. Um, so I don't know that that's necessarily a factor. It it could have been a office politics kind of thing, too. It, it's really hard to say without seeing some interviews with somebody saying, well, no, we didn't go because of this reason. Um, but that one, I think, is a bit of a stretch. Um, just from somebody who was reading before Crisis, it never seemed to me like they treated Earth 2 as a ghetto. Earth 2, Earth 1 was usually the, the ones that everybody understood fairly well, other than the, the characters that existed on both, the Supermans and the Batmans. Um, it's when you started talking like the Earth X and Earth S and and some of the others that people started getting really confused. And I kind of found a lot of that was more the guys who were coming over from Marvel rather than the people who'd been reading DC up to that point. Because usually they, they took care of that in like a one-page explanation. Um, at least for me, I never had a problem with that. Of course, I didn't have a lot of comic reading friends around. I had a couple, and so it wasn't like we talked comics a lot. So I can't speak that everybody felt that way. 
I'm sure there was a certain segment that did. All right, well, let's move on to issue 10. And issue 10 is important for only one reason, and that is because it's the last comic book written by the great Joe Simon. It's another collaboration between Joe Simon and Jerry Grandinetti, and it introduces a group of horribly mutated misfits who are loathed and feared by the world that they have sworn to defend. It's basically the X-Men, if the X-Men all had mutations that made them into hideous monsters in terms of their appearance. Uh-huh. And, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure how to feel about this issue. I kind of enjoyed it on a level because I just enjoy everything that Simon and Grand Donetti do on a level. Uh, I thought the basic premise had... Um, had promise and I found some of the backstories of the characters to be interesting. Although it was a little odd, they, they gave you origin stories for half of the team and just completely ignored the other half. Uh But again, this, this sort of feels like the first several issues of the series where they're burning off inventory stories that, that they don't have any expectation will ever sell or become popular. Part of me wonders why they, we're getting work from Joe Simon at all because nothing that he <coughs> was doing for DC uh, ever worked, really. You know, starting with Brother Power the Geek, everything he was doing with Prez and um, Strange Sports Stories or and Champion Sports and all of those things. Like his, he worked as an editor on the romance books and that was fine. But the stuff he was these titles he was creating, they all failed within three or four issues at the most. So I kind of wonder why they even bothered, because there was no chance that this was ever going to sell. Um, I think probably a lot of that is Simon's track record of uh, having been an editor, having been uh, somebody who helped give a start to some of the folks that were at DC, being a colleague, being of that same generation, kind of paying it back a little bit. I'm sure that's a factor to a certain extent. Um, being as experienced as he was, he probably was good at a pitch. So he may have pitched a good idea, but when he turned it in, it wasn't so great. Um, I don't know. This particular one, uh, I would, I kind of like it a little more to the Doom Patrol rather than the X-Men take, just being because of the focus on the freak part of it. And I kind of wonder if the pitch hadn't have been something like trying to revive the Doom Patrol with a new one which is something they did in Showcase not long after this, that I kind of wonder if that might have not been kind of a adjournment of the idea that maybe that was something that Carmine wanted to do and Simon took on the idea. This, this issue really struck me, and I think you mentioned this in your reviews, like especially the opening two-page splash. It, it seemed like an ad for a line of toys. Yeah, um, the whole thing actually kind of read like like a promotional comic for a line of action figures that no one would ever actually put out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it does kind of have a kind of a garbage pail kids kind of idea to it, and they they jump on this vehicle uh, that can split apart and all this stuff. It just it reads like those toy ads they would have that were done by comic book people, uh, or like what Kirby did for the the big gym. Uh, pack dolls that they had from like Patel, I think. Uh, and, and the buildings that you see, that, that hospital that they operate out of, 
looks like something from a playset, or like I said, my or my write up some of those Jerry Anderson super marionation shows where they spend like twenty minutes doing shots of a model moving along and then think, oh yeah, we have characters in this too. And I kind of felt like that in some of those some of those panels that it all just kind of looks like a big playset that we don't really have much of a story behind. Yeah, like a lot of these issues, I felt like there was an interesting, th- there was potential here. Yeah. I, I'm not sure Grandinetti was the best fit for this because he almost made the characters too freaky and too horrific. If the design had been a little more palatable, I think there could have been something here. But as it stands, as far as I know, these characters never appeared again other than like in a brief cameo or like background characters or something. They've never really been featured in the story again as far as I know. Yeah, I think somebody posted in the comments that somebody had reused them briefly, but not anything significant. So we get to issue 11, and starting with issue 11, it's um, it's a bit of a shift, but not entirely. In the early issues of the series, they were allowing their established creators, giving them a platform to sort of put out their ideas uh, even though there was no expectation they were going to sell and I feel like the last three issues are kind of in the same mold where these last three issues are all written by Jerry Conway Mm -hmm. and he had just come over recently from Marvel and I feel like this is something where they wanted to give Conway a platform to put his ideas out they wanted to show him that they valued him and so they put these issues out Again, I don't necessarily feel there's a huge expectation that they were necessarily going to sell. Now, I will say they feel much more contemporary than the issues at the beginning of the series. Conway, you know, for better or worse, is a 70s writer, and they feel Mm -hmm. like books from the 70s, and they have, like, actual stories. Um, The first of these is Codename Assassin, which I know you're a fan of. Oh, yeah. So... I'm not. So so why don't you why don't you go ahead and talk about it and then I'll um I'll pitch in. Okay. Um Codename Assassin is essentially um Conway's attempt to do another kind of vigilante revenge story a la the Punisher, but give it kind of more of a paranormal superhero aspect. Uh character is a jock. Uh he's in college. He's taking part in these ESP experiments, and there's this machine that's supposed to test their potential. And an accident happens. He gets a he gets feedback, and it magnifies mental power. So he's able to telekinetically float in the air, and he's able to read minds. But um, I'm trying to remember who his girlfriend or something like that is. Hers a brother. It's a somebody S- close sister. to him is killed. Sister. Sister. Okay. Uh, is killed by the mob, so he goes out seeking vengeance, as you do in these kind of things. And except he does it in a superhero costume, complete with buccaneer boots, and uh, kind of weird stylings on his uniform that probably just had to do with breaking up the color scheme. And it kind of ends abruptly because he meets a couple super-powered gangland killers, and they're about to face off, and that's as far as it goes. I liked it because it had a lot of potential. The character itself kind of, like I said my write-up, is kind of Deathstroke before he existed. It's 
it's a hired killer. Well, not exactly a hired killer, but it's a vigilante style character with superpowers, but not so far into the unbelievable realm. It's kind of in the realm of possibilities if you buy into paranormal abilities, which the 70s were a big on ESP and that kind of thing, amongst other fads and, and wild ideas. So it kind of falls within a, a more plausible realm than some of the other kind of superhero stuff. And the two gangland thugs visually were kind of cool looking. You got a big bruiser looking powerhouse who can actually channel electricity. And then you've got this snake character who can contort and, and sit around. So there's a nice pairing of the two and a nice visual contrast with the hero character. It kind of falls apart with characterization. It kind of falls apart with pacing, particularly since it kind of ends on a cliffhanger. Um, <coughs> if they had really intended something, I can't see where they wouldn't have used the character somewhere else like they did other failed experiments to at least wrap up the story. So I don't know how far Conway ever really intended with it. I think that's one of the weaknesses of it is he may not really have had a destination in mind. And so he took it as he basically kind of fleshed out a pitch into an issue. And that's as far as it goes. And I think that's a weakness of it. I agree. I also feel like I'm going to lay some of the blame with Carmen Infantino because the you mentioned the designs of uh, some of the characters looking cool, but to me, it, it made the book kind of neither here nor there. Like the writing has a sort of naturalistic, um, realistic feel to it. Uh, it's it's a little you know like you said you could sort of buy into some of the power stuff. It's a gangland thing. Um, it feels sort of like a grittier crime thing with these with just some supernatural and super elements to it. But Carmen Infantino design, did the, all the designs for the characters and their costumes, and he made them very comic booky. And yeah. to me, the, the end result was sort of, it was either not comic booky enough, or it was too comic booky. It was sort of in this in-between area where the two, it just didn't feel like it was working, where it had, you know, it felt like Infantino was coming in with his superhero sensibilities and designing superhero stuff for a for a story that's not at its heart really a superhero book. So the pieces just didn't fit for me. Yeah, I can, I can see that. And I, I agree to, to a certain extent. Um, and that's kind of the thing for me is it wasn't a standard superhero thing. And a lot of it is seeing the potential in that kind of story in that kind of series. But at the same time, it, it kind of, the superheroish stuff does seem kind of tacked on, and the costume kind of adds to that. Versus, the Punisher does feel a little closer to being well. At first, first appearance, he, he kind of feels just like a, a standard uh, villain character from the Superman or Spider-Man books of that period. But the the more he appeared, the more kind of militarized he was. Uh, this kind of doesn't quite get that naturalistic uh, visually, anyway. So. Like several of these other characters, Codename Assassin disappeared forever until James Robinson brought him back in the same storyline where he brought back Atlas. Uh, mm -hmm. Only when he brought back Codename Assassin, he was actually an assassin. He was a he was the yeah. villain. Yeah, um, he. You know, I kind of wonder. Um, 
Robinson, one of the first books that he got noticed on, or at least one of the early books he got noticed on in America, was Firearm for the Ultraverse line from Malibu. And that character is a former government kind of black ops guy who's more now operating as kind of a private eye. And I kind of wonder if he didn't kind of decide, well, I can kind of take that same idea and that assassin character kind of fits that. And that's the route he wanted to go with it versus what had been in the original comic. I'm a huge fan of firearms. So anytime we can talk about firearm, I'm all for it. Yeah, that is, we talk about underappreciated gems. That was a, one of the better Ultraverse ideas. Um, and certainly with his writing, the artwork uh, didn't always rise to the occasion, but he definitely was starting to strut his kind of narrative chops there. That might be a topic for, for another podcast, if I can find anyone that wants to talk about firearm for a while. <laughs> um, but let's move on to issue 12. Issue mm-hmm. 12, Starman. And this is a great cover by Joe Kubert. It's, mm-hmm. uh, and of all the characters other than Warlord... This is the character that is the most important of all the new characters. And it's, again, it's due to James Robinson. In this story, uh, we have a a narrative that's actually very similar to Marvel's Captain Marvel, Uh um, where we have this uh, guy who's part of an alien race that's coming to Earth to conquer it, and he kind of changes his mind and decides to defend Earth. And just like last issue, it ends on a cliffhanger where he's about to face off against this killer. And that cliffhanger isn't resolved for over 20 years Mm -hmm. uh, because the the character didn't appear again until James Robinson's Starman, where he took this Starman and all the other Starmen who ever appeared in DC Comics and wove them together into this um, fantastic tapestry exploring DC history. After that series ended, this version of Starman, um, Michael Thomas, or however you want to pronounce it, that's I'm going with Michael, um, stuck around for a while and ended up joining the Justice League for a while and uh, also became one of the first sort of um, major, or DC characters at all, but major DC characters who was... Uh, in a same-sex relationship. He got married in Starman to a guy named Tony. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Robinson's Starman, so I have a real soft spot for the character, and I think this is actually a really interesting issue. It's it's well done. It's very of the 70s, which Robinson yeah. gets a lot of play out of when he finally um, follows up with this story and explains what happened after oh. this cliffhanger ending. What I feel like was the big drawback and the big... Um, problem with this comic is the artwork. Um, it's Mike Vosberg, uh-huh. and it just feels kind of blocky and awkward to me. Um, I feel like it, if the interior art were anywhere near as good as the Joe Kubert cover, I think this is a winner right here. Yeah. Vos- <clears throat> Vosberg was one of those young guys working around DC, like, um, Oh, was that Mike Nasser is another one, Netzer, whichever name he was using at the time, um, that they were, you can see there's an element of talent there, but they're really under, underdeveloped, and they needed a lot of seasoning. And, you know, one of the ways you get it is through books like this and through things like House of Mystery was another 
big one for young talent to kind of build their skills on. But, um, you know, like House of Mystery was a Joe Orlando edited book. So he's mentoring guys like Mike Kaluta and that, whereas Vosberg, I don't think, was getting that kind of mentorship as, as strongly. Um, so he's not developing as well. That I think that um, he wasn't the best choice, and he wasn't really the best choice on the New Gods either. Because uh, it, it he has problems with his staging, with his storytelling. And kind of his, uh, kind of the way he handles faces and things like that. He developed into a much better artist later on. He, he was uh, handpicked by Howard Chaikin to do when he revived American Flag at First Comics, uh, kind of aping Chaikin's style. But, uh, he, you could definitely see he'd come a long way in those, you know, a little over 10, 15 years. Uh, but yeah, at that point in time, he just wasn't quite up to, what he was being asked to do, and it definitely it hamstrings it. Now, one odd thing on the uh, text page, talking about the character, this kind of I guess is what jogged my thinking about that Doctor Fate issue with the uh, Earth Two question. On the page for Starman, they have a little thing about the Golden Age Starman, and they said that they weren't interested in reviving that character, Ted Knight. So, in order to clear room for the new Starman to appear, they basically wrote Ted Knight out of the uh, Justice Society book in All-Star by having him like break his leg or something, and then he gave his cosmic rod to the Star-Spangled Kid. And mm-hmm. they, they positioned this as though, like, they said they wanted to get rid of the previous Starmans so that there would be a, a clear space for the new Starman. And I was reading that going, like, why? Uh, first of all, the other Starman's on Earth 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one does, doesn't say, but you have to assume it's, you just assume it's on Earth 1. And secondly, the Ted Knight Starman hadn't appeared other than in like a very brief role in, you know, the annual JSA crossovers in the Justice League. Hadn't appeared in a, in a major role in a comic book since... Brave and the Bold 61, which was 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't understand why they felt the need to write out the old Starman when he wasn't in anything to begin with. Yeah. And it got me wondering about like where their thinking is in terms of of the, the readers readership's feelings on Earth 2. I, I almost wonder if that isn't more of Jerry Conway not liking the character or liking the visuals, because it, like I said, again, All-Star's, uh, All-Star Comics revival with the JSA was his baby, and the Star Spangled Kid was part of his super squad. That super he squad. To, to, to appeal to the younger crowd to be more of the Marvel-ish characters rather than the old school DC, and so he gives Starman's cosmic rod and makes it a belt instead to Star Spangled Kid, and Robin is front and center, and it, we get Power Girl that I kind of wonder if it's more Conway didn't like him, so he wanted to get him off the table, both in the JSA, he didn't want to use him, and he wanted to use Starman, but he wanted to eliminate uh, any connection to that Starman. I think he definitely is firmly setting it in Earth-1. Um, I think he was probably one of those people that wanted to get rid of the multiple Earths kind of thing, because uh, he seemed to kind of 
in his run on JSA with the, the All-Star revival, he seemed very much one of the guys who wanted to, to get rid of the uh, the old school characters that existed on both worlds and focus more on the ones that were unique and and kind of write it almost as if it took place on Earth One. Uh, he definitely was focused on the younger crowd. He introduces the Huntress and all that, which uh, or actually no, that's Paul Levis that introduces the Huntress. So I'm already screwing myself up. Uh, but yeah, I. I think a lot of that is probably Conway um, not wanting to use it. I, I suspect a lot of it really just has to do with the character didn't have a ton of personality in his earlier adventures. And I also think there's probably the visual with the fin on the, the his cowl or whatever it is, or a helmet, um, that he just felt it was too 1940s, 1950s sci-fi-ish and wanted no connection to that. Um Again, that's supposition, but I, I kind of get a feeling it's it's more him than anybody at DC. I think everybody at DC was just kind of like, okay, you know, your stuff worked at Marvel. Go ahead. Which actually brings us to the last issue of the series, uh, Return of the New Gods, where Jerry Conway took his uh, Marvel-style, middle-of-the-road superhero outlook and projected it onto the fourth world. And the result for me is just sort of classic Conway. And by that, I don't mean, I don't mean that in a good way. (laughs) Like Conway works on some classic issues, but when I say classic Conway, I mean sort of uninspired, boring superhero work. Um, Because it's reading this issue, the return of the new gods, just looking at the cover where they took the Kirby's design for Orion and gave him this blandly generic superhero outfit instead, mm-hmm. um, tells you everything you need to know about the comic. Uh, it's just like, we're going to take all of Kirby's ideas, sand off all the rough edges, and make it middle-of-the-road, boring superhero book. Needless to say, you can probably gather, I am was not impressed by this comic. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of that particular issue. It one, it just kind of throws a lot of stuff at you without going very far with it. Other than basically, it's Orion. That's all he's interested in. The other characters are there, kind of crowding the scenes. He doesn't. He never was very good with Darkseid. Um, he just doesn't get the character until the the Justice League New Gods crossover that he did. I think by that point he had kind of gotten a thread of Darkseid, um, but. I actually liked some of the regular New Gods series that he did, although more for Don Newton's art than Conway's writing. I think at times Conway had a germ of an idea, um, but he doesn't execute it. But I am okay with it because I was a huge fan of Don Newton, um, having seen him at Charlton with the Phantom, and then when he came over to D.C., and I just kind of loved his art style, that very moody line. Um, I just knew Gaz wasn't necessarily the best showcase, but I love what he did with like Forager. Um, I thought he was the first one to see the potential in that. Um, at least Newton visually, Conway, I don't think really did anything with him because the character disappears for huge chunks of that series. Uh, but yeah, that that one is really rough, and I had actually not seen it until I was in college, having seen. 
the first regular issue of the Return of the New Gods. Um, it was issue 12, I think it is. Um, and seeing it as Don Newton and, and, and loving that it, that particular issue. Now, the subsequent issues, not as much. It was one of those that had a nice intro, and then it kind of doesn't go anywhere for a good chunk of it. And then I saw that and said, wait a minute, that is like really not Don Newton, and that is really rough. And then having reread the story for my write-up, I just felt it kind of really doesn't work. And it's one of those, it was obvious that New Gods was already greenlit to come back. In fact, they had talked about it when Kirby was leaving, and he wasn't interested in touching it again because he knew it wasn't going where he'd already committed to going back to Marvel, because uh, Mark Evanier said. And uh, so it's, it's one of those that Conway already was working towards it, and then there's actually a gap between this and when they finally do revive it. But, uh, yeah, I'm not a, much of a fan of it. I, I'm forgiving on some of the stuff that Conway did in The Return of New Guys, but not so much this one. I, it just feels wrong. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned, like, they've been talking for a while about New Gods being revived. Um, unlike Warlord in issue 8, where they say right in the thing that it's going to be picked up as a series, in this case, in issue 13 with the New Gods, it says in the letter page that they might put it out, but it'll depend on sales and letters and stuff. I don't know how true that is, but it's interesting to think, if that's not true, and if they had already decided to do the series, this is the last issue, a first issue special, and what you have is a tryout series where that didn't launch anything. It didn't have a single character or series that actually came out of it, because the only two books that went to an ongoing series, they had already decided to make them ongoing series before the tryout issue. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty crappy track record. I'm hard-pressed to think of another tryout series from Marvel or DC that didn't come up with at least one or two major characters or, or ongoing series. Yeah, I mean, Marvel Premiere didn't exactly launch in much in the way of the comics. It became it was kind of a showcase for ideas for character or just kind of inventory story. So by that, you know, by that standard, it wasn't any better at launching new series, but it had more memorable individual issues but uh yeah it's it's definitely it didn't have a track record of showcase marvel premiere they had iron fists in issue 15 yeah um well it's one of those things like marvel kind of they they were a lot of their mindset was if it wasn't working doing this well let's just turn it into something different and we'll keep it going that way and um they did that with a couple of books like uh marvel superheroes uh, ends up being a reprint book for, after being a few tryouts. And I think Marvel was more willing to try to see if they could salvage something out of a book versus DC just kind of, well, we don't know what we're doing, let's just cancel it. So this is the last issue. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be the last issue, though. Um, as we've already mentioned, there were two comics that we know were scheduled to come out as issues and, and ended up getting their own series instead, which was Batgirl and Robin, which became Batman Family, and Cobra. But there was a third issue that was supposed to be published in first issue special number 14, which they had been teasing for several months in the letter column. And that was going to be a solo or team book with Green Arrow and Black Canary. And Mm -hmm. 
they didn't end up publishing that story for like a year and a half or two years. It eventually came out, uh, I think it was a year and a half. It eventually came out in Green Lantern number 100 as the backup story. Um, it's the team of Elliot S. Magan and Mike Grell. And this is one where I didn't think the story was that great, but I feel like it was a real missed opportunity uh, for them to to do an actual tryout with characters that are, yeah. you know, have proven since then to be popular enough to carry their own title. Yeah. Well, and they, uh, I'm trying to recall timelines, but I believe, or else subsequently, uh, Green Arrow had been backups in Action Comics, and I can't remember if it was before First Issue Special, during, or after because uh, my brain's pretty fuzzy on that time period. It was um, it was right around that time, I think right after the end of that series, where his backup series moved over from action to World's Finest, when World's Finest became a dollar book. And Black Canary actually got a backup too. So it was interesting, at that point, Green Arrow and Black Canary were actually appearing in Green Lantern, uh, starting in 1976, and in World's Finest, and they had what this sh- should have been a trial book for their own series. So th- there was a lot of them going around. It's just, yeah. I don't know, I feel like it's a missed opportunity. That's that's a series that I, as a big fan of Green Arrow and Black Canary, would have been really interested to see. And having read, you know, the story in Green Lantern 100, uh, I feel like it's, well, it's not great. It's a lot better than some of the crap they actually put out in First Issue Special. Yeah, and the... Uh... The backup stories they did in the action comics ones were usually pretty good. Um, I can't remember if Elliot Magan was the writer on those or not. Grell was the artist because a lot of his early work were some of those backup features in action until he got a regular book assignment. Uh, so, I mean, he and Magan had worked together I'm pretty certain before this. Uh, Magan actually was one of the, the regular Green Arrow writers. Um, that's a, that's a plot point brought up in that one JLA JSA crossover where Carrie Bates is the villain and Elliot Magan shows up and he tells Green Arrow, "Well, I write your dialogue." Uh, and Magan, but was by some accounts one of those kind of hot-headed young Terps, <laughs> which uh, in more ways than one, he, even when he was a little more seasoned, he was a bit hot-headed, which is kind of how he ended up getting out of DC for a while there. Um, but it's. Uh, the story itself, yeah, it, it does read kind of weak, but um, they had done better, so I, I don't know whether it was just... I kind of wonder if it might have been a leftover from that. It's definitely Grell. Grell's art is weaker on it, and I, I kind of have a feeling that might be because of the DC style being where the, the writer scripts in, and usually they wrote panel descriptions, and the artists were kind of locked into those scripts in a lot of ways, unless they had enough power to say, no, nah, I'm not going to draw that, I'm going to do this instead. And there weren't many of those guys at DC at that time. Neil Adams could get away with it, maybe, but not many others. Versus Grell on his own, as you say, with Warlord, you can see um, his writing style is also built around his art style in that he knows when dialogue needs to carry the story and he knows when art can can say it in one panel and and say it better. And he very much knows when to mix it in and out and when he's working with other writers, he has to kind of cater to their script, and it doesn't work here as well as it did with, say, Denny O'Neill and the Green Lantern Green Arrow stories. So, now that we've come to the end of the series, 
What do you think the overall legacy is? What's your takeaway from the series? For me, I feel like the series completely failed at what it claimed its purpose was. Um, I don't think that it was ever intended to be a true tryout book. I think it was a place to burn off inventory stories. So in that in that sense, it's less like, say, Marvel Spotlight and more like um, Marvel Feature, mm-hmm. uh, where they're just burning off inventory stories and sort of doing favors to different creators. I don't feel like they really thought any of that stuff was going to sell. I feel like... It, it was set up to fail. And, I mean, the main legacy from the book is Warlord and that James Robinson ended up coming back 20 years later and mining uh, a lot of these stories for some really good material. Like, he saw the okay. potential in them uh, and sort of rescued a lot of the characters and settings from obscurity. But in a lot of cases, that obscurity was... was uh, well-earned. For me, the appeal is kind of... Some of it's nostalgia, because, I mean, I saw a couple of them in that era, but when I hit college, I found a bunch of them dirt cheap and bought a bunch of them and was just reading that stuff, and and just... Some of it kind of tickled me. Some of it, I thought, was a nice idea that just didn't turn out well. Uh, Like you say, I think it was a place to dump inventory, both DC and Marvel went through a time of where they were just churning out material to try to choke out newsstand space. Um, and I don't know if that was one of these periods. I, I've never really paid that close of attention to when they were doing that kind of thing versus another, because I've always been more about the stories rather than their kind of publishing wars. But I wouldn't be surprised if this was kind of, well, we need to get another book out on the stands and we need to churn out some of this inventory um, yeah, definitely, it doesn't work as a showcase. Like, and even the original showcase's batting average isn't all that great when you look at it. Yeah, it launched a few good series, but then you also had stuff like the, the issue with a fireman character that never went anywhere, or a James Bond adaptation that was actually a reprint of a, a British Classics Illustrated kind of thing. Um, so even its track record wasn't as great as you, you tend to think just because it launched a couple of really big series and a couple of uh, cult favorites. Um, I think at this point in time, I think DC was kind of really at a loss for what was selling. I don't think Carmine really had a good handle on it. I don't think the entrenched editors did. The young guys were frustrated and they were going off to Marvel as soon as they could get a gig because uh, most of them took off, or else they took off into other realms like uh, Bernie Wrightson and Mike Kaluta and those guys that kind of went off away from the mainstream comics into other endeavors or alternate comic kind of stuff. Um, I, I just kind of think it's just another of them let's just throw another book out there and see if they'll buy it. We don't know what's selling, so we'll try anything kind of attitude of that era. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it it sort of uh, personifies the last flailing days of Carmen Infantino as the publisher. Yeah, and really, if you look, when Jeanette Kahn takes over, it's shaky at first, but it it gets stronger and stronger as she gets people into position who want to make good comics. 
and um, they're willing to take a chance. You you have the the explosion, the implosion, and all that kind of thing. But um, once she starts getting people in place, and once she's pulled in some more talent from Marvel and and a couple other uh, areas, then they really start to to gel a little bit. It takes a few years, and it's really the mid '80s when DC finally is paying off on all that. Um, so it, it wasn't an easy process, but definitely Carmine was out of ideas. Yeah, and this this reads like the transition from the old guard to the new guard, where you have the last DC gasps of people like Kirby and Simon and Infantino, and to a lesser extent, you know, Ditko. Um, and then right at the end, the new guard with Grell and... Simonson and Jerry Conway coming over from Marvel. It's definitely a, a series. You get you get the shift, the changing of the guard from the old to the new. Yeah, and I mean we kind of slide off Jerry Conway a little bit here. I don't think the first issue special really showcases his DC work well. Um, he did some darn good Justice League stuff, and he did um, some things like Firestorm, where he's trying to bring in that Marvel style, but he's kind of dealing with that kind of old mindset at DC um, that it took him a while to really bring anything through. Justice League, I think, is where he succeeded the most uh, for a while, not for a long term, because he kind of goes off the rails after a while. But uh, for a while there, he was putting out some pretty decent Justice League comics after they had been kind of spinning their wheels a little bit. Particularly with like the JLA, JSA crossovers, he started making some really interesting ones. He was one of those guys that that kind of wanted to explore some of the characters they had sit in the background. Like they're one of those crossovers. He brings in some of their historical characters, like Jonah Hex and the Viking Prince and Enemy Ace and all that. And I, I thought that was a pretty cool issue. And then he he goes into the, the stuff that he did with Perez and the the finishing off the New God story. So. This definitely wasn't a good showcase for him, and I don't think All-Star Comics was either. I think it took him a while to kind of get a handle on the DC characters. I think he was too used to the, the Marvel ones and being able to write that, and it took him a while to to, to adjust. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a changing of the guard, and it's also kind of some of the young guys kind of finding their way and kind of last throw, death throws from some of the old guard. That's it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. I'd like to thank Cody Starbuck once again for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of First Issue Special. Tune in next time as I'm joined by the Captain to discuss Steve Englehart's classic run on Captain America from issues 154 through 186. And as always, visit us at ClassicComics.org to join in the discussion.